0: Warning! This issue of Nil Desperandum is rated R for strong language. Nil Desperandum 29 Fisher Cat by Seth Harwood Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Thank you once again for listening. Main fiction today is Fisher Cat by Seth Harwood. We also have an interview with Seth Harwood, an excerpt of which you may have heard last week on the book, guys. This is the complete interview, full and uncut, as it were. This particular story, Fisher Cat by Seth Harwood, is part of his collection A Long Way From Disney, which you can find in podcast format on PodioBooks.com or from his website, sethharwood.com. It was originally published in Post Road Number no. 12 back in 2006 and is also available as an e-book on the Amazon Kindle. It is read by the author.
1: Fisher Cat
0: Adam first sees
1: the animal while he's taking out the trash. Sarah has been up for a time moving pots and pans in the new kitchen, and she greets him with a white plastic bag. Dumpster, she says. Because of this, because he has not started to think yet, Adam is wearing only pajama bottoms and a T-shirt when he first sees the movement in the back of the large green dumpster. At first it is this fact, that he's not wearing shoes, that occurs to him like a bolt of understanding. He freezes in the parking lot of their small suburban complex, the bag beside his knee, just as he had been ready to swing it up and onto the trash. The movement is a brown animal in the back of the dumpster. Just a thing. Furry. This is where Adam looks again when he gathers himself to step forward. Over the lip of the dumpster's front edge, he sees it huddled in the back corner, against the brown-green wall. He can't miss an animal in his trash bin. Its fur dark and shaking. And it is big. It resembles a raccoon, only bigger, and Adam has never seen a solid brown raccoon before. It is not a raccoon. It watches him with yellow lozenge eyes. It has four full, solid legs. He curls his toes, feeling the bumpy tarmac, wishing he wore shoes. The animal's front paws rub each other like an old man washing his hands. It leans forward and disappears to the shoulders into a white garbage bag that it has clawed open, its arms scratching on either side of its body. Adam remains frozen, looking at it. It stops going through the trash and its back shivers, contracting as it crouches into the corner, like an animal ready to defend its den. It watches him. The animal's snout isn't narrow like a raccoon's, he notices. It's wider and flatter. More of a mouth. A thin gleam of white shines from within it. Adam steps back. For a moment, he stands there, the plastic garbage bag still in his hand. He considers lobbing it in at the animal, but imagines that it might charge out, come running in some blind fury. He pictures the animal scratching at his legs, taking small bites out of the soft flesh on the backs of his thighs, clinging to his legs. He steps back, simply puts the bag down against the curb and walks away carefully, cautious not to move too fast. When he is a good distance from the curb, he turns and walks normally. He considers the teeth as he walks, telling himself that he would have looked longer if he had shoes on. Back inside their apartment, Adam is unsure what to tell Sarah. She makes his breakfast and he eats it quietly, pretending he is still partly asleep. He does not want to scare her. As soon as he has finished eating, he retreats to their den the place where the computer is one of the only things unpacked in their new apartment. It's the internet that he goes to first to try and find information about this animal. He starts with Google, trying to find a way to search under raccoons and animals, but can't find any good pictures. At first he can't even find raccoons because he misspells it with only one C. Then he does find websites about raccoons. The first is a guy in Weymouth, who has stuffed several raccoons and appears in pictures holding them to his bare, hairy chest. Adam searches through website after website, trying to find his animal, though he's not sure exactly what he's looking for. His searches don't work. He tries dumpster and animal. finds a lot about rats and raccoons, nothing brown. He searches in his desk drawers and finds the Encarta CD-ROM discs he has never used, the ones that came with his computer, and puts one in. It makes a lot of noise, but starts fine. He looks up raccoon, finds a picture and some text about them. There are also two headings called Related Animals and Similar Looking Animals. He tries the first and finds only bears, a lesser panda, and a kind of monkey that lives in South America. In the second, he finds one entry, a coati. This looks nothing like his dumpster animal or a raccoon and lives only in the mountains of Mexico. Adam searches on the net for another ten minutes, and, finding nothing, decides to check his hotmail. That night, he tells Sarah about the animal. She has just turned off the TV, a signal that Adam usually reads as a prelude to making love or to sleep. But those were things they did, patterns developed in their old apartment, where they were either living together or engaged. Their first night in this new bed, this married person's bedroom... Sarah complained about the lack of car sounds, that there were no voices of people walking outside their windows. All she could hear were the crickets, a sound she found disturbing. So what do you think it was? she asks him. And before he can answer, tell me again what it looked like. He tells her, brown, long, four paws, yellow eyes, tail, teeth. Do you think our neighbors know about it? He shakes his head and shrugs, hoping she can see these gestures in the near dark. She rolls against his body, letting him put his arm behind her, and places her cheek against his bare chest. It's just so quiet out there, she says. Do we even have neighbors? Adam remembers an older man, wearing blue polyester pants, walking out to his car the previous weekend, and the way he drove away slowly through the parking lot in his Lincoln, almost coming to a full stop at each speed bump. Maybe we can trap it, he says, though he has no idea where this thought came from. The phone rings and Sarah reaches over him to answer it, her left breast brushing his face. He can smell her smell. He closes his eyes and inhales. Dad, it's so good you called, Sarah says into the phone. She slides back to her side of the bed, leaving only the phone cord across Adam's body. After a little small talk, Sarah tells her father about the animal. She puts Adam on the phone and makes him describe it to her father. He whistles at Adam's description and starts laughing. Sounds like a fisher, Adam's father-in-law says. Big and brown, lots of teeth. They've actually got two rows of them, people say. The old man laughs, a sound that's more like the sound of someone who spent time in the woods, the sound of an old hunter than Adam thinks he'll ever make. It's related to a weasel, but it's bigger. A small wolverine is what it is. Usually people see a fisher cat up New Hampshire or Maine. I suppose you're about up there now, though. Adam hands Sarah the phone, and she hears from her father what he thinks the animal is. Adam can hear both sides of the conversation. Sarah's alarm and her father's assurances, his offers to help. The thought of a wolverine makes Adam think of a rabid animal ready to scratch hell out of anything in its way. He thinks of how easily its hole could be his dumpster how he could be that thing. He slides his legs out of the bed, over the side, and sits up. He stands and walks into their new bathroom, onto the cold linoleum floor that sends a chill into his feet until he stands on the new soft mat. He had always closed the door when he and Sarah lived together, and now that they're married he wonders how long that'll keep up. He closes the door now. Adam runs water until it gets warm, then adjusts the temperature until it's right, and rinses his hands. He brings water to his face, bending over the sink, and rubs his palms over his eyes. If Sarah and he can afford to keep paying their mortgage for the next thirty years on this condo, they'll be fine. Neither of them can imagine being here that long, but still. In the mirror, Adam sees he needs a haircut, that his sideburns are too thick, and he needs to shave the sides of his neck. On the side of the sink is Sarah's toothbrush, out of its holder, away from his. She leaves it here now, in their bathroom, and he could use it if he wanted. He looks at himself again, then hears a knock at the door. My dad thinks we can trap it, Sarah says, that we should. Adam's eyes are blue, calm. He has never considered his eyes beady or dangerous before now. He is not a trapper, a hunter. He wonders if maybe he can see wrinkles forming beside his temples, if this is how that happens. Are you okay in there? Sarah asks. The next morning at work, the first thing that Adam does is search the net to find pictures and information about fisher cats. He finds a few pictures and information about how they live in Maine and New Hampshire, how they do have two rows of teeth and are considered extremely dangerous. He finds a site where a family shows pictures of a fisher they stuffed after it died in their bushes. When it's dead, it doesn't look that bad. That afternoon, a man named Tony, a co-worker who Adam has never said more than hi to before. He is actually known within the office as Knuckles, a nickname he got for the way he cracks his fingers while on customer calls. Calls he is always on, calls that are long enough and many enough to make the rest of Adam's area look bad by comparison. Calls that, from what Adam has heard, put Knuckles closer to a million than half a million in earnings last year. He walks into Adam's cubicle, crouches down beside the extra chair, and looks into Adam's eyes. He crouches there, like an NBA coach on the sidelines, his impeccable tie and tie bar hanging between his legs, and stretches his fingers out from his palms, starts to clench them. "'Let me be right to the point,' he says. "'I hear you've got yourself a Fisher Cat, or that you've seen one. It lives on or near what you own as property?' Before Adam can answer, he goes on, "'I want to help you with this problem, "'and what I am made to understand is that you do perceive it as that, "'a problem. This is true?' "'A problem? Is that right?' Knuckles looks hard at Adam, expectant. "'How did you know I saw it?' Adam says. "'I am willing to help you with this problem. "'I am willing to find this friend "'and neutralize what you yourself have termed a problem. "'Andrew must have told you, right?' Knuckles nods. Do you want me to help you or not? How, Adam says. And then, I'm not sure. Knuckles shakes his head at this in a way Adam understands to be pity, as if he himself is guilty of not being able to follow what has just happened. We'll take care of this, pal, he says, standing, clapping his large hand onto Adam's shoulder. He looks around them and adjusts his cuffs. We will have to deal with this in a timely manner, you understand, but not one that undermines your sense of animal decency. This I understand, nor your wife's. I understand she will have concerns with this. He adjusts his tie, as if he's just finished a distasteful bit of business, pulls it tighter and straightens it, then fixes his collar, finally leveling the tie bar. We'll be all right with this, he says, turning to head back to his office. We will do what needs to get done. Adam waits for the end of the day, and then for most of the department to leave before he tries to talk with Knuckles. He makes an extra sheet worth of cold calls, as many as he can stand. After this, when he gets up to look, Knuckles is still in his office, on the phone, cracking each finger's first knuckle one at a time with his thumbs. Adam slips a few performance sheets into his briefcase, a wedding gift from Sarah's mother, and shuts down his computer. He walks up the aisle toward Knuckles' office. Their eyes meet, and Adam is waved inside. Knuckles holds up a single finger and gestures toward one of the two leather chairs that face his desk. "'And then you'll just roll back your annuity, Chet,' Knuckles says into the phone. "'Yes. Then you'll be on Nantucket sipping piña coladas and thanking me.' He winks at Adam and rolls his eyes. "'Right. My ties Better,' he laughs. "'Chet, one of my assistants just stepped in here with some fresh charts I should scan.' Something is said on the other end. He laughs. Right. A very short skirt. He hangs up. So, he says, straightening his tie. Good day? Fine. All right, I guess. Knuckles starts thumbing through his Rolodex and then stops. Let me tell you what. Chet just today passed along a contact. Knuckles writes something on his pad, rips off a sheet, and hands it to Adam. Bam, he says, pointing at the sheet. New money. This guy just signed a contract to supply every D'Angelo's with seafood salad. You know D'Angelo's subs? Fucking multi-million business, and this guy has crab parts and mayonnaise for all of them. You say you're my associate when you call. Knuckles winks. Set him up. The paper in Adam's hand has a real name on it. A contact who needs services. Adam hasn't made a sale in two weeks. Thanks, Tony, he says. You bet, pal. But that's not what you came here about, am I right? Knuckles nods. Don't worry, we'll take care of our friend this weekend or sooner. Knuckles rolls his chair back and stands. Or sooner, he says. He opens a closet behind his desk, removes a jacket, slips it on. He adjusts the cuffs, his collar, his tie bar. We'll take it out, pal. Over and done tomorrow morning, if you like. Tomorrow, Adam says. Knuckles snaps his fingers. I'll come early tomorrow morning. You're up 93, right? By New Hampshire? I'm there 5.30. We'll tackle that bastard. Be in by nine. Knuckles snaps his fingers. You're aware of the fact that they're nocturnal. Tomorrow's good, Tony, Adam says. The earlier the better. Knuckles stuffs a few folders into his briefcase and removes a ring of keys from his desk. So 5.30, he says, coming around the desk. He claps Adam on the shoulder. Adam sits up in bed before five. He has been awake since twenty-one minutes after three. On the other side of their bed, far from Adam, Sarah breathes heavily. He rolls out of bed, chooses a dark gray shirt and a pair of green army pants from his dresser, and takes them into the bathroom. In the mirror he sees himself, balancing with one hand on the sink, trying to slide into a pair of pants he hasn't worn since college. Here he is, wider around the chest and waist, "'sucking in mightily to button them closed, "'seeing himself in a mirror surrounded by small, white bulbs, "'the kind for putting on make-up. "'He chooses an old pair of boots out of the hall closet, "'timberlands, and sits down on the carpet to put them on, "'lacing them all the way up and tying them tight. "'To get up, he rolls over onto his knees "'and then lifts one foot at a time onto the rug. "'It has become harder to start up from the floor "'in just the past year, it seems.' In the back of the hall closet, behind his old jackets and the vacuum cleaner, he finds a small shopping bag that holds what few tools he owns. A hammer, pliers, and a little used electric drill he bought when he was in college. Also in the bag is a large red monkey wrench. He picks it up and hefts it, feeling the weight, the heaviness in its head. They have reached the early part of fall, when mornings are bright and dewy. Cold but with the promise of sun still to come. The trees have not lost their leaves, but the greens have turned to brown, with some reds. Outside, the morning is still gray, with white light coming over the houses. Adam can see the dumpster ahead, not thirty feet from him. Nothing moves. He wants to throw something from where he stands, but he has only the wrench. He taps it against the inside of his left boot, then his right as he would imagine a batter in a baseball game tapping the mud from his cleats before entering the box, and starts across the asphalt. Over the front lip he sees only white kitchen trash bags. Then he stops when he hears a scratching. Adam thrusts his head over the edge and pulls it back. This time he does not see any creature, just the plain white and black bags. He hits the side of the bin with his wrench. At this, a great bonging sound comes from the metal, like hitting an empty tanker's hull. It takes a time for this sound to dissipate, as if it had scarred the morning itself, sent a ripple through the gray dawn. He looks around, expecting car alarms, curious neighbors, wishing he had never made the noise. In time, however, the morning returns to its calm. No one stirs, or has moved, and in fact that scratching has stopped. Adam looks over the edge again, imagining a crouched, angry cat ready to pounce at him, when Knuckles says, What's up? Adam jumps back, raises the wrench, and Knuckles takes it from him with one hand. "'You've got to relax, pal,' Knuckles says, tapping Adam's chest with the tip of the wrench. This is when Adam notices the absurdly large silver handgun that Knuckles holds by his waist. "'Jesus, what is that for?' Knuckles raises the gun, a silver monster with a scope sight on the top. He points it toward the sky. "'Just a simple tranquilizer gun, brother.' Adam feels inadequate with the wrench now. Knuckles has his hair slicked back and wears a tan hunting vest with lots of pockets and a plain white t-shirt. He has on white leather sneakers and black nylon running pants. Adam notices a cell phone mounted on his side. Knuckles pushes the wrench into Adam's chest so that he has to take it. If that makes you feel comfortable, Knuckles says. Adam grips the wrench. What do we do? Why don't you hit the dumpster again with that while I stand back and watch? Then when he comes out, you can chase him down and beat him to death with that thing. Adam forces a smile. It's in there, he says. I heard it scratching. He eyes the gun again, still not used to its size. What are you going to do with that? Okay, Knuckles says. With both wrists, he smooths the hair back along the sides of his head. Then he leans his neck to each ear, cracking it, and exhales. He turns and paces back to the cars, turns again and looks through his sight at the dumpster. Adam takes two steps back. Knuckles walks to the dumpster slowly, counting his strides. He looks briefly inside and then walks around the outside. He stops and crouches by its back corner, listening. His nose rises, as if he has found a scent. Adam looks up to his condo, the kitchen window, hoping to find it empty. All he can see is the horizontal blinds, halfway raised. He looks at the other condo's windows, and not finding any curious faces, relaxes. Here's what we do, Knuckles says. We have to flush him out. He looks at his watch. If we can get him out and I can sight him, if I can get a clean shot, our problem's solved. I take this guy home in my trunk, mount his head on my wall, everyone's happy. Adam imagines the brown Cheshire cat face smiling down over a hunting room with a big fireplace, leather chairs, and a bearskin rug. He can see the fire burning and Knuckles in a hunting jacket, smoking a cigar. That's what you'd do? Knuckles nods. Fucked up, huh? He moves to the dumpster. You hit this spot right here with your wrench, he says, and taps the back corner of the dumpster with his sneaker. You hit it hard and then stand back. He'll come out the other side, running apeshit for those shrubs, and I'll shoot him. He smiles. "'Done!' Adam shakes his head, wanting there to be something more solid than this, something that involves a big cage and some peanut butter. "'You just knock that bin when I say to, brother!' Knuckles walks back toward the cars and kneels. He places one right-angled leg in front of him and rests his left elbow on it, steadying the gun in both hands. "'Just like this, it is happening,' Adam thinks, giving a last look at his empty kitchen window and thanking Sarah for sleeping through this. He crouches next to the dumpster and winds up. Stop, someone says. Adam can only see Knuckles from behind the dumpster, not the source of the voice. Knuckles turns, pivoting the gun in his hands, his shoulders shifting behind it, and fires. The gun makes a hissing sound, as if it's just let out some long-held breath. And that is all. What? Adam stands and looks around. He hears a thump on the far side of the dumpster, and coming around it, he sees the old man, The one with the Lincoln, flat out on the lawn, a small white dart stuck in his neck. Knuckles walks over and kneels by the man's side, rubbing his own neck as if he can feel the sting of the dart himself. What the fuck? Adam runs around to stand over them. The wrench slips out of his hand and thumps on the grass. He looks up, all around them at the windows, sure now that someone has seen this. He doesn't see any faces, though. Shakes his head. What'd you do to him? Knuckles removes the dart from the man's neck. He swallows it into his large hand, then tucks it into a vest pocket. He'll be fine, he says. Just react is all. Who did? Knuckles whistles through his teeth, shaking his head. Wow, that was fast. What the fuck is wrong with you? Adam says. You shot him. Why? Knuckles stands up and turning from the old man and back toward the parking lot puts his left hand on Adam's shoulder. In his right hand, he still holds the gun. Let's just do this thing, and then we'll get him fixed. Do what? Knuckles takes one step from Adam and points at the dumpster. Get that thing, he says. He slides part of the gun open, looks inside, and then closes it again. What the fuck? Adam's Adam turns to look down at the old man. His eyes closed. He lies flat on the grass, wearing white creased pants and a blue sweater a white collar sprouting up around his neck and a white golf cap still perched on his head. Only the red dot on his neck begins to explain what happened. Let's go, Knuckles says. He walks back to his original position and kneels again. He waves Adam back to the dumpster. Come on. Are you crazy? Adam says. What you just did to this man was wrong. So very, very wrong. How can you not still be thinking about that? Knuckles stands. He'll be fine. He gestures with his empty hand. I shouldn't have done that. Me a culpa. But let's not forget what we're here for. This guy is my neighbor. Okay, Knuckles says. Time to let little boys be little boys. He walks to where Adam stands and raises his hand. Adam flinches and Knuckles laughs. He bends down to pick up the wrench and then springs back into a crouch beside Adam. Fuck me, he says. The old man squints at them, his hat still on his head. He sits up and rubs his neck. What the hell was that? Wow, Adam says. Shit, the man says. You boys are three sheets of fucked crazy. He rubs his neck. How do you feel? Adam asks. Goddamn, the man rubs his neck. You boys shot me. Relax, sir, Knuckles says, moving toward the man. Just take it easy. You've had yourself quite an experience this morning. You're damn right, I have. God damn! He stops rubbing his neck to get a good long look at Knuckles. You shot me, you fucker. Adam offers the man his hand. No, thank you. The man says, making his way onto his hands and knees, then working his way up to a kneel and bracing, bracing both hands on a knee to stand. Knuckles moves closer. His wallet out. He steps forward holding a single, crisp, clean, hundred dollar bill toward the man. I'm very sorry about your troubles today, sir. Can I offer to pay for your medical bills or any dry cleaning that you might require? The man look at the man looks at Knuckles' hand and purses his lips. His whole face tightens, as if getting ready to spit out a filthy taste. And then Knuckles takes out another hundred, and the man looks at his hand again, the money, and his face loosens. Well, he says, taking the bills. No harm done, really. He slips the money into his pocket, then brings his hand out empty and rubs his neck. What? Adam says. Muckles looks at Adam. We're trying to trap ourselves a fisher, he says to the old man. We've got him right here in this dumpster. He picks up his gun. Oh, the old man says. That fellow's been around here for a long time. A long time. Just picks the trash is all. He points his chin toward Adam. He scared you good, I bet. Adam wants to sit down on the grass now and make all of this stop. He wants to reclaim his whole morning. Just go back up to his bedroom and have Sarah make all this go away. He sits down, touches the wrench laying in the grass. How did this happen? He asks. What's the matter with you? The neighbor says. I'm the one who's been shot. Get up and help us get this thing. In disbelief... Adam makes his way onto his feet. ''Get your wrench,'' Knuckles says. In the grass, the wrench looks perfect, like it's found a nice, soft home and a place where it could stay for a while. Adam bends and lifts it. He stands. ''Get ready, bro,'' Knuckles says. The old man crouches down along the wall of the dumpster, knocking on it with his fist and moving slowly. He gets to the back side and stops, knocks twice in the same place. ''I believe it's here, boys!'' Right here in this corner. You want to flush him, you'll need that pipe wrench. He walks over to Adam, and leading him by the wrench, brings him to the corner of the dumpster. Hit it hard now. He walks toward the parking lot to stand behind behind Knuckles, who kneels again, repositioning the gun. Get ready. Adam crouches low beside the dumpster. On the other side this time, the side the old man came from. He winds up to hit low on the corner, and then dive out of the way. "'What say now?' The old man claps his hands once, and bends over, hands on his knees like a third-base coach. "'Go ahead, brother. Send him out.' Adam steps back a little, then lunges forward, swinging the wrench and diving toward the dumpster at the same time, using his whole body to move toward his mark. He hits the side, making a louder bong on the metal than before, and continues his movement forward, falling and rolling behind the dumpster, away from where he thinks the fisher will run. Nothing happens. The sound slowly dissipates, and there is no movement. Damn, the man says. Hit that sucker once more. Adam releases now, swinging blindly from his crouch behind the dumpster, hitting its corner inside once, and then again. Get out of there, you fucker, he calls, feeling the pain of the metal vibrating in his bare hands. hoo hoo he hears, then Knuckles' gun going off. He stands as fast as he can, and sees the fish are shooting across the parking lot. Spread out long, it looks like four feet without the tail. It runs under a Ford Explorer parked in 22G. Yes, sir, the old man says, walking toward Knuckles, his hand extended for the gun. We got him now! Frowning, Knuckles holds out the gun, handle first, to the old man. What's going on out there? Adam turns to see a face in a first-floor window a woman in curlers, with white hair and broad, strong features. You leave it be, Nancy, the old man says. We're going to catch us that Fisher's always hunting the garbage. He slides the gun open and then closed again. Adam? Sarah's face appears at their own kitchen window. He waves from behind the dumpster, holding the wrench down and out of sight. Is everything okay? she says. Everyone all right? Adam nods. He puts his first finger up to his lips and then points to the explorer. The old man walks straight out into the middle of the parking lot, close to the dumpster and not ten feet from the explorer, and drops into a push-up position. After slowly lowering his body to the ground, he takes his hat off and sets it beside him, then bends his elbows and sights the gun. Adam walks out from behind the dumpster to see, aware that Sarah is watching. The man lies prone on the blacktop, the creases along the back of his pants pointing out from his torso in a V. I'm sorry, boy, he says, and shoots the gun. Adam hears the hiss and a thud from under the car. The old man stands, holding his hat on the gun. He puts his hat back on and runs his finger along its front edge. Adam comes forward to where the man and knuckles are, and the man hands knuckles the gun. You get him, he says. I'm not crawling under there. Adam bends at the waist, trying to see under the car. He can't see it, so he gets on his hands and knees and turns his head sideways. A brown animal lies under the car, with the white butt of one dart stuck in its belly. It looks peaceful. The head settled on the ground beside its front paws. It lies on its side, as if it has just fallen over, all four paws facing the men. Its mouth is not as big as Adam has imagined it. Just a snout, not even grinning. He hears a door close and sees feet walking on the other side of the cars. Then Sarah emerges in full, wearing a T-shirt, her college shorts, and old flip-flops. She has her hand extended as she walks right up to the old man. A pleasure, she says. Very nice work. He tips his hat with one hand, shakes hers with the other. Gus Wilkes. Pleasure. I'm Sarah. Sarah Porter Berkman. That's my husband Adam. Adam. They both look over at him, then back at one another, and she smiles. He stands up as the old man laughs politely, and they stop shaking hands. Behind Adam, Knuckles stoops to pick up the dart he fired, now laying at the foot of the dumpster, and goes to his SUV, parked a few spaces from the Explorer, and opens the back door. His arms emerge without the gun, wearing thick canvas gloves and holding a canvas dustful bag. "'I'm Tony,' he says aiming his chin up when he notices Sarah eyeing him. ''What are you going to do with it?'' Sarah asks. ''We'll set him loose in the wild,'' Gus Wilkes says. ''That sounds fine,'' she says. Knuckles comes over to where Adam stands. ''Coffee,'' he says. ''I need some fucking coffee.'' ''Would you like to come in, Mr. Wilkes?'' Sarah asks. He nods, then follows as Sarah leads him inside already starting to talk about how she and Adam have just moved in and how happy she is to have met a new neighbor that can help them get adjusted. Knuckles sets the bag down next to the Explorer, lowers himself onto his hands and knees and crawls under the car to his thighs with the bag, then comes out a moment later with the bag sagging in the middle, noticeably heavier. You really care what I do with this guy? He says, standing up. Adam shrugs. I don't, but they probably will. I'm taking it. Knuckles says, turning away. I'll see you at work. Adam watches Knuckles walk back to his car, a bright silver SUV that looks simultaneously fast and over-large. He imagines himself setting the fisher loose in the wild, seeing it paw around for garbage and finding nothing in an endless carpet of pine needles. He sees himself shaking the animal out of the bag as it's fighting mad, seeing it fall to the ground and then spring up onto him. He says nothing as Knuckles slams the door to his trunk, points at Adam with his index finger, and then makes a trigger with his thumb and snaps it down. He also says nothing as Knuckles gets into his car, closes the door, and backs out. As Knuckles pulls away, Adam notices how his car hardly moves going over the speed bumps, absorbs them like they were nothing at all. He looks around at where he is, at the morning and the fact that the trees still have leaves, that there's grass around his apartment. And he heads inside.
0: Uh, so joining me is uh, Mr. Seth Harwood. Seth is the author of uh, the A Long Way from Disney collection of short stories, as well as the Jack Palms crime novels, uh, along with uh, Young Julius, Young Junius. Sorry, uh, and his most recent mm. novel, In Broad Daylight. Uh, Seth, thank you for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me on. I'm really happy to be here.
0: Uh, so first of all, I wanted to talk about. Uh, Fisher Cat, uh, which we've just recently heard here on Nil Desperandum. Now, this is a story that you included in your collection uh, A Long Way from Disney, which is substantially different from the rest of the fiction that you write.
1: Um, Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I mean, so the short stories are more literary, I suppose you would say, and now I have started into more of a crime genre for sure definitely crime now
0: so did you start out with the crime and just kind of fill in with the the disney collection or was that kind of your first work and then you decided to start writing crime fiction how did that
1: work more the second one um i went to, i was really in love with the short story as a form and i think i sort of cut my teeth as a writer learning how to write short stories you know, I always really loved the work of guys like Raymond Carver, Richard Ford, and Dennis Johnson. Juno Diaz, too. Um And so I was writing short stories uh basically up through graduate school. Um I went to the Iowa Writers' Workshop, and I was writing exclusively short stories there, which was kind of an anomaly. A lot of people were writing novels, looking toward the business side. And then when I tried to publish a collection of stories... um sort of all the agents and folks that I spoke to wanted a novel from me. So I spent a few years trying to write a literary novel and then realized that the novel that I wanted to write was really a crime novel. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've always been a fan of, you know, shows like The Sopranos and The Wire and Dexter and played video games when I was growing up and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And so... um it just felt like that was more of a natural fit for me in the novel form, and basically once I started writing crime novels, that's pretty much all I've been writing.
0: So with the story of the Fisher Cat, is uh, having just recently re-listened to it, of course, I kind of got a different perspective on it, because at least with some of the characterization, there is kind of a crime drama feel to it yeah you know i i can certainly see you know some of those characters especially the uh, uh the coworker
1: knuckles <laughs> yes knuckles <laughs> <laughs> you
0: know i i can easily see him showing up you know as just you know some low level punk in uh you know in in a jack palms novel
1: Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, I haven't really thought about it, but looking back and thinking about the story now, maybe that is sort of a precursor or an intermediary to kind of getting into the crime stuff. I remember when I was writing it, um, you know, I had worked in environments like that and and lived in areas like that, sort of on the border between New Hampshire and Massachusetts. And um, I was fascinated by this animal, the fisher cat, and so I wanted to write him into a story. But I remember writing it, And introducing the part where Knuckles had a gun. And I remember the day that I was writing where Knuckles winds up shooting the old man with the dart. Right. And I, you know, that just happened onto the page. I didn't have an outline. I didn't know where I was going. And Knuckles, you know, the old man pops out, Knuckles shoots him. And I remember just writing it and thinking, like, this is crazy. I'll definitely go back and erase this later. And then, you know, ultimately, as I sort of realize what was happening on the page i realized that it was really exciting that that had happened and i liked it and and i wanted to keep it
0: well, and there's and there's some definite comedy in there too is the as knuckles is just trying to blow it off and oh it's no big deal here's some money <laughs> <laughs> and the old man pops up and hey let's go get it let's go no problem
1: uh, yeah, no, I love that because, you know, it's got the comedy and, and I think also that was probably the first time that I ever had anybody shoot anybody else in one of my stories and, um, yeah, it definitely surprised me at first and then as I got some distance from it, I realized I really liked it.
0: Great, great. So, with this particular story, it, it fits, I mean, even in... Sp- you- in spite of that or maybe because of that it fits very well into uh your collection a long way from disney which i, I guess my question is how autobiographical autobiographical is that collection because yeah. there is a a definite you know kind of reality realistic feeling in there that this has actually happened you know all these things have happened along the way to someone at some point, is this <laughs> are these your stories? are they someone else's stories, or you know are they just fully formed out of uh out of your imagination
1: yeah, um you know it's a mix of all of those things they're definitely not whole cloth fiction uh but they're not all things that happen to me. you know it's a mix of things that happen to me, things that happen to other people um Characters that I know and characters that I've sort of invented out of multiple people that I've come across. Um, yeah, I mean, as with a lot of things, it's definitely a mix of of all the possibilities. Some of those things happened to me, and I definitely sort of in writing this spent a lot of time thinking about my parent, my own parents' divorce, and, and what happened, you know, with that. And maybe I process some of these childhood demons by writing it. Um, but yeah, I mean there's parts that do resemble pieces of my life and my family and parts that definitely don't. And then you know, hindsight is always in memory, not necessarily 2020. I mean, I'll I'll have a thing that happened in one of my stories where I know it's fiction and someone from my family will read it and say, "Well, I can't believe that that really happened." Or or yeah, I remember that happening like that. Or vice versa where they say, "You know, this is this really didn't happen." and i know that it did.
0: Hmm, interesting. Yeah. So, okay, so the the uh the hard hitting question then have, have you ever gone hunting for a fisher cat? Is that uh, No,
1: okay? no, that is part of the all fiction. <laughs> Basically the fisher cat story is all fiction. The background of that is um you know, i actually the characters are married um and i wrote that before i was ever married. Um I wrote that before I was ever living with someone in a situation like that. The place where they're living is kind of modeled off of a condo that I lived in and, and that my grandma that I sort of inherited and lived in for a while after my grandmother moved out of it, which was sort of upstate New York a little bit. Um and so I was picturing that as I was writing it, but um no None of that is real And I've never even seen a fisher cat Other than pictures on the internet I would love to see one
0: <laughs> Nice um, Okay, so moving into uh, The rest of your fiction uh, You are of course um, Probably most famous If I can use that Certainly you know, where <laughs> I first discovered you as one of the, the patio books originals If you will With the first Jack Palms novel
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean that was exciting and continues to be exciting. I've just recently released on my site, you know, it's been a long time coming, but I've just released um the print version of the Second and Third Jack Palms novels. Um and those are both out as ebooks now and I'm I'm in the process of basically putting the print version on sale, which I did a kick I did a Kickstarter campaign earlier in the year to sell some copies of it and now I'm in the process of putting that on sale on my site. So, you know, by the time this gets up, with any luck I'll have copies of This Is Life for sale on my site in print, which which I think came out really well.
0: And you're self publishing then?
1: Yeah, this round is the first time that I'm self publishing. I've always gone with publishers before, big and small, and had my share of problems and finally I decided to just see what I could do myself.
0: Well, I'm gonna to have to ask you about those in a in a minute um let let me ask you first what what was it that drove you to podcast uh Jack wakes up and to give it away for free in that in that audio format rather than you know just leaving it with a traditional publisher and saying that's good enough
1: Well, I was really having trouble finding an agent and getting it out there, and i was re- I was getting frustrated with the process of just packing envelopes with manuscripts and and cover letters. And, um, you know, I had done a ton of that with short stories, sending them out to literary journals. And I had had success. I had gotten probably about 12 out of the 15 stories in my collection published in literary journals. And, you know, everything I had always heard was that once you could do something like that, agents would be interested in you. So I was having a hard time getting agents. It was a really frustrating process. And I realized... I just wanted to get the book out there in a way that people could engage with it and interact with it, um, read. I didn't even really think of listening until I found out about podcasting. And from there, you know, I had had been a big fan of listening to books on CD that I would get from the library uh, in my car commute. And so when I found out that I could do this myself and that people were looking for these books to listen to, I really jumped at the opportunity to get the book out there on the web so in a way that people could could start to listen to it. Part of it was because I really wanted to find a way to build a platform and get the book out and part of it was a way to sort of give myself a way to start writing something new. I felt like if I if Jack wakes up was getting rejected by agents it meant that there was a problem with the book and I couldn't keep editing it anymore. I was sort of I just just was ready to be done with it. And so I wanted a way to get it out there and sort of get it off my chest so that I could start working on something new. And, you know, podcasting wound up being a great way to do that because I started interacting with the fans. They were excited about it. They responded really well to the book. And then, you know, that got me writing the next Jack Palms book.
0: So was your was podcasting it then instrumental in some ways and you being able to eventually publish it? To be able to, oh, definitely, and say, you know. Here, look, there's a there's a legion of fans out here, <laughs> you know, who would love to buy this book. You know, it, it's found money. All you have to do is put it on paper, and you know, the money will start coming in. Yeah, it was. In.
1: It was funny. I said that. I basically that became my cover letter to agents, and none of them responded. And then, you know, there was a small publisher, Breakneck Books, that was run by a guy, Jeremy Robinson, who really knew what we were doing in the podcast world. He was friends with Sigler, and he had seen what we were capable of, so he wanted to bring it out. And in 2008, Breakneck Books brought out Jake, Jack Wakes Up. On the first day it came out, we hit number 45 on Amazon in in books, was above James Patterson, And basically, when that happened, that's when agents started to believe what I had been telling them. And the next morning, I had an agent basically emailing me for that found money that you just mentioned. (laughs) Hey, you know, I haven't responded to your emails or read this book that I requested to see in full, but you did something good. Can I get on track with you now? And and the funny thing was that I I had told him exactly what I was going to do in an email a few months before that, and he had never even read the email.
0: Nice.
1: (laughs) Nice. So basically that was my introduction to my first agent, uh, and it wound up being sort of a similar ride. I now have a second agent who who I'm a lot more comfortable with. But yeah, I mean, basically that guy was able to sell the book to Random House based on what I had done, and then we turned it around. It came out a year later, and, you know, things went from there.
0: Excellent. So you've been doing this for... Quite a few years now, with all the Jack Palms novels, uh, and then Young Junius, and then uh, most recently uh, your first uh, Jess Harding novel, *In Broad Daylight*. Um, yeah. Have Have things changed? Is it getting easier to get these works into a traditional publisher, or are are they still as reticent as they were five years ago, four or five years ago?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I I don't. Probably 10 years ago or 15 years ago, publishers were giving first book authors like a two-book deal or maybe even a three-book deal off the bat to see what they could do with a couple of books. And now, and when Jack Wakes Up came out, it was much more like, here's a one-book deal, see what you can do with that, this is your shot. And we have really high expectations. Um, So, yeah, publishing is is still really hard to get into. You know, I've made a lot of connections this way, and I've been able to find agents and publishers. The publisher who brought out Young Junius was really excited to work with me because of all that I had done, and so I really wanted to do that project with an independent to try that out. But, um, yeah, publishing is definitely still a hard nut to crack. I feel like the number of books that, that they're publishing has gone down and the n- number of risks that they're able to take on writers that aren't sort of a bankable commodity... Uh, have gone down as well. I mean, you know, the economy's in tough shape, and if you look at the movie industry and and think about, you know, how how they're really trying to do big blockbusters and ones that they know have a star and will make money, the book business is going a little bit in that direction as well.
0: Now, you had mentioned earlier that uh, with This Is Life coming out, uh, that you're actually self-publishing this one. Uh, Yeah. Why did you decide to do that?
1: Um... You know, I guess I was tired of waiting. I didn't want to wait around anymore to to sort of work through this and that and the fans wanted the book. You know, at the same time I was I was I probably it's hard to remember now, but I think I podcasted This is Life and Checkmate, you know, back in like 2008, 2009. So, so this has been sort of on my bookshelf for a while, ready to go, and because nothing has happened with it with publishers uh, I really wanted to get it out there to the fans. And so I put it out. The fans responded really well and quickly on Kickstarter. My goal was to make $4,000, and I reached that goal in the first 24 hours. Then after that, we wound up getting to 7000 Um But, you know, I still think... I'm re- I still, you know, that was in September, and I still haven't really been able to get the book fully on sale yet. I'm getting really close and I'm excited about that. I guess one of the things that I've learned from self-publishing is that there is a reason that publishing takes a lot of time, especially for an author who's trying to do other things like write new material, teach classes, and, you know, put the books together, get everything through copy editing, production, layout, book design, all of those things, you know, it can really take a long time.
0: Sure. Um... Do you expect to see a difference in in sales from uh your traditionally published work versus um self-publishing this is life? Do you think it's so much
1: Yeah, so much of publishing is changing. I mean, when Random House brought out Jack wakes up, they got it into bookstores and and looking back on it, that was a really big gamble to publish, you know. 8,000 copies of a book and try to get them into Barnes & Noble and Borders and Amazon and Borders isn't even there anymore and and so you know publishing is really changing and so the amount of bookstores that you can get into now is smaller, the amount of books that make sense to print are are smaller and the funny thing is looking back on it and looking at Breakneck Books which was a print-on-demand publishing house you know in some ways that was the best model we're at a place now where the print-on-demand really makes sense in terms of Getting the book out there with sort of a minimal capital investment, and as sales continue to go online um, you know there's definitely nothing wrong with print on demand, and it continues to make more and more sense in addition to that you've got the ebook markets now where, as an author, I can make as much. On a two ninety nine on an e book that I sell for two ninety nine as I was making on the Breakneck Books version of Jack Wakes Up that came out for fourteen ninety nine. So to ask my fans to buy something online, you know, it's a lot easier to ask them to buy something that's two ninety nine than fifteen bucks. And if I can get the same money either way, the e book revolution is really helpful to me as a as a self publisher.
0: Great. Great. Um Change directions a little bit with your your latest work uh, is uh, in broad daylight. Uh, the, what I assume is the first of, uh, what will be more than one uh, Jess Harding <laughs> novel. Definitely. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm a little curious about something because, when when I started um, listening to In Broad Daylight, when you started publishing, when you started podcasting it, uh, I was a little nervous going into it, because I thought you know okay you know. Seth Harwood great crime writer love his fiction no problem everything he's done before everything he's done up to this point is great but okay wait a second now he's now he's going to Alaska and he's coming out with a female lead and it just seemed like there were just so many minefields with both of those things you know so many stereotypes and so many um, problems that you know could have arisen that you know you you Managed to avoid, did, did you, <laughs> <laughs> quite frankly. I was totally, uh, you know very, uh, very pleased to to see that you know it you know she didn't you know, she didn't come across as a you know kind of the stereotypical junior agent that I was going to expect and um you know you certainly your realization of you know the the first half of the book in Alaska you know came across as um you know someone who has spent a A fair amount of time there. How did you how did you find writing both of those things? Was it was it as much of a stretch as it seems like it would have been?
1: Um, You know, it's sort of the same thing with Young Junius, which predominantly has African American characters. I mean, you know, I could have really botched that one, and from what people have said, I didn't. You know, I think if you respect your characters and you really sort of try to get into their heads. It's not necessarily as dangerous as one might think. Um, At the same time, you know, maybe by not thinking so much about the ways that I could botch it, uh, I sort of backed my way into not botching it. You know, but um, I can tell you that I went to Alaska um, last summer and totally fell in love with it. You know, most of the places that wind up being in the book are places that I visited while I was up there. And I fell in love with it. I really paid attention to the details that I was seeing as I was traveling there and mostly worked those into the book. Um, And, you know, in terms of Jess Harding, I guess for a while I wanted to write a female character. Jane Gannon found her way into the Jack Palm stuff. And maybe she is even a little more stereotypical than Jess Harding. But, um, you know, I have a sister who I'm pretty close with. And so I think in some ways Jess Harding owes a lot to my relationship with her for, you know, Jessica, my sister is actually named Jessica. So that is kind of a tip (laughs) off right there for sure. Uh, but, um, you know, she's nothing like Jess Harding and she's far from being an FBI agent, but you know, I guess you just do the best that you can to try to give your characters real life on the page and, and not to make them three, not to make them two dimensional, but to give them real Voices and personalities.
0: Well, I'd say so far you've managed to do that very well. So what's, <laughs> what can we look forward to next? Obviously, you uh, have uh, yeah. uh, This Is Life coming out soon, we hope. What's what's on the heels?
1: Yeah, This Is Life is coming out. I'm looking to bring out In Broad Daylight as an e-book and um, as a print book. Uh, m- just recently, I've rewritten the ending of Triad Deathmatch. Uh, which was a Jack Palm story that takes place in the in San Francisco. Um, I had podcasted that a while ago and never really liked the ending that much. so I rewrote it in preparation of bringing that out in print, which should happen in the next couple of months. And um, you know the next thing that I podcast is either going to be an old story that takes place in Boston with the help of some other listeners who are helping me record that or, the next Jack Palms book, which will be Jack Takes Off, which is Jack in the road trip that he takes with the checks after Jack Wakes Up wraps up. So in between Jack Wakes Up and Jack Palms 2, there's a road trip that a lot of the listeners have been asking to find out what happens on. And I've started writing that, but I'm also working on a number of other projects involving Jack Palms and Jess Harding. So right now there's a lot cooking. And great things will be happening soon at (laughs) SethHarwood.com.
0: Excellent. Um, Are we ever going to see Jack Palms and Jess Harding meet up? Is there going to be a team-up book at some point?
1: I don't know. That's a good question. I definitely don't know the answer to that now. You know, Jess Harding winds up being an FBI agent in San Francisco, so that... You know, certainly makes sense that she could come across Jack Palms. The other question that people have been asking is whether Jack Palms, or is whether Jess Harding knows Jane Gannon, because ultimately they would both be FBI agents in San Francisco. So I don't know yet whether these two worlds will collide or even coexist, but uh, I think it's a good question and something I'll definitely have to think about. I would bet, if I had to bet, I would say that it's going to happen eventually.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Well, we'll definitely look forward to that. Um, Keep uh, following along at SethHarwood.com and uh, look forward to what you have in store for us next.
1: Great. Thanks a lot. Yeah, there's going to be more good stuff on the way.
0: Great. Well, thank you very much for joining me, Seth. I appreciate you taking the time.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: NIL DESPERANDUM is released under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no-derivatives license. Editor and publisher is Jim Phillips. We are 100% listener-supported. We need your help to continue the podcast and to continue paying our authors. If you enjoyed this or any of our stories, please visit www.ndstories.com to leave a comment and a donation. Every penny is appreciated, and every little bit will help.